Five years ago, the population of the Syrian Arab Republic was 23 million. Half of those people have been forced to flee their homes. It's the biggest displacement crisis in the world at the moment. Anas and Amar al-Qadri are two of those people. Uh, we didn't know actually about anything. I just know Ireland before from, you know, the movie, P.S. I Love You. So how did you come to be here? Oh, uh, on my way home, college trip. We started in Greece. Jeez, that's a long walk. That's yeah, good. I just know Ireland from that movie. <laughs> you said it was going to be warm. It is warm. I know you're lost, but you do know you're in Ireland, don't you? And the potato problem. And... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. This is Anas, a 25-year-old Syrian. I didn't think in any way I would arrive to this country. It's February 2015, and we're in the park in the small town of Ballyhonus, County Mayo. Always the weather like this in Ireland. What month did you arrive? Uh, I arrived in the summer, actually. I wear the jacket, because in my country in summer, I, it's like 40 degrees. But here it's warm. Get above 22 or 24. No. Yeah. We, get, we get very excited when it's 24. <laughs> Anas and his younger brother Amar have been in Ballyhonus for eight months, living in an asylum seeker reception centre since they arrived in Ireland in late summer 2014. I'm from Damascus. I like my old life. The... Champions League on the TV with the guys. There is a coffee shop and we used to play cards there and see the matches. And after the coffee shop, we go to dinner. And the dinner was two or three in the morning. <laughs> All of this changed now. There's no electric, there's no water, there's no anything. There's nothing there. It's a long way from Damascus to Ballyhonus, especially when you come the way Anas and Amar came. A treacherous and terrifying journey across deserts, seas and strange lands in the hands of ruthless smugglers. The route from Libya to Italy had been used for years by migrants trying to reach Europe, but nothing like the numbers that attempted it in 2014. Over 200,000 people got into rickety boats last year, but for Anas, there were no warnings about how deadly the trip could be. Actually, in Syria, they told me this is a really easy trip. Just a three hours in the sea, like a yacht and everything, it's easy. I didn't hear anything from anybody about the, how there's a lot of people killed in this trip. Anas was 24 years old. He has two sisters and two brothers. His youngest sister was 14 and still in school. Another sister was married with children in Damascus. His older brother had managed to get work abroad in Saudi Arabia as an architect. His younger brother, Amar, had just finished high school. He was 18 and the military wanted him. The future in Syria was bleak, but he didn't want to go. To be honest, it was really, for me, it was very hard to leave because in Syria, to be honest, I was the spoiled son for my father. Anyone, anything I want, he said, okay, take it. And I have too much friends, very social guy uh, I actually in Syria I was going to study medicine I thought yeah why not I will see new lands but I didn't think that it would be this hard 
Anas and Amar prepared to leave everything and everyone behind. I've got a girlfriend in my country, but when, when I started the trip, I told her, if I didn't make it, move on with your life, okay? Uh, uh. Syrians can't enter Libya without a visa. So to get there, and to get to the point where they could find a boat to Italy, Anas and Amar had to fly to Lebanon, then to Algeria, where they would find smugglers who would take them across the desert in Algeria and Libya to reach the coast. When you go out from Algerian airport, there's a lot of smugglers there. They know from the language, they know our Syrian, and they ask, you know, do you want to go Italy, Italy? They decided to go with a big group of people, about 100 Syrians and Palestinians, including children and older people. As they crossed South Algeria, it still seemed like the journey would be pretty straightforward. They put us in really fancy hotels and all the people eating good food. But the fancy treatment didn't last long. And once they hit the point of no return, the desert, the smugglers' attitude quickly changed. When we took the first step in the desert, everything stopped. There's no way to go back. Even the food, even the water, nothing. And they, they start to treat us like uh, animals. We can't change our mind. You must follow all those people. You can't run. It was events that began four years previously that led Anas and Amar to this point. This is the sound of the almost carnival atmosphere of the Arab Spring reaching the Syrian city of Hama in July 2011, when thousands of citizens gathered in the streets, singing, come on Bashar, it's time to go, demanding the resignation of President Bashar al-Assad. What followed has been a brutal suppression and a complex civil war involving rebel groups and jihadists, creating humanitarian disaster in the country. Dissent in Syria is being met with an increasingly harsh response from the government. UN investigators say they have a high degree of confidence that chlorine has been used repeatedly and systematically as a weapon in the Syrian Arab Republic. According to the UN, 250,000 people have been killed and 12 million displaced from their homes. For Anas and Amar, life as they knew it was ripped apart. The family had had a factory that was destroyed in fighting. Life shrank as they were confined to small parts of the city. The last four years, you can't do anything. I'm just going back from my work, eating my lunch, go see some friends in just a small area. There's no safe place. Anas Namar reached the Algerian desert. They traveled on for 18 hours in a bus got out, walked some desert, five more hours on the bus until they reached a field and waited for nightfall to try and cross the border so that Algerian police would not catch them trying to get into Libya. In the desert, there was around 20 families and every family there is a three or four kids, small one. So every one of us carried two kids or one kid and we was walking and the smuggler was saying, don't make any noise when any kid just crying or something, all the family come around him. Between the Libyan border and the Algerian border, no one even make a sound, nothing. 
only in the moonlight we record that desert. It was very dangerous there because uh, all the border guards carry a gun and be afraid from the smuggler. If they hear any low voice or anything, they, they start to shoot without anything. They just start to shoot. Because they're scared of the smugglers? Yeah, because uh, there's a lot of oil smugglers between Libya and Algeria. The smuggler in Algeria, it's Algerian. And the smuggler in Libya, it's Libyan people. And it's always like very bad people. They don't have mercy or anything. They just love money. They use weed all the time. They don't feel anything. We was in the month of fasting, so it's Ramadan. So they were in the morning they was fasting and in the night smoking weed, smoking weed all the night. So they, they don't feel anything really. Finding themselves in the hands of these people was in large part down to the fact that in Syria, military service is compulsory for all males over the age of 18. Anas managed to defer it as he went to college and he has a degree in civil engineering. But after he finished that, he was wanted by the military. If any soldier capture you and you are run from the military service, they will take you to the prison. It's really small. They will capture you and torture there. You can't stay in safety without doing anything. You will carry a gun and shoot, that's for sure. Anas tried to go to neighbouring countries to find work, but countries like Jordan, Turkey and Lebanon are at saturation point, with millions of Syrians seeking asylum there. I try in Jordan, I try it in Lebanon, in Istanbul. I can't work, I can't do anything there. Jordan people or Lebanon people there look at Syrians like, uh, like bugs, actually. But I went back to Syria, Damascus. I tried to stay there without problem. You know, don't go with the government and don't go with the Freedom Army. Just stay in the middle. But it's so hard to do that there. In the desert, once they got across the border, the group was handed over to Libyan smugglers who would take them through the Libyan part of the desert. The Libyan driver, now it's Libyan, he drives like 180 kilometers per hour, I swear. That boy, he was 15 years old, the driver. So I catch someone, I told him, we will jump now, because it will explode or something. Yeah, we was <laughs> saying, oh my God, we will jump. I couldn't open my eyes, but we was laughing this, really we was laughing in this situation, because our friend was, very, very hilarious, yeah. The other guy with us, he's my neighbor, actually. He was like, only make jokes, and we are, we are nearly to death, and he make jokes. <laughs> we walk in Libyan desert, like another 20 hours. In the night, it's very cold, and in the morning, it's really hot, and there's no water, and the problem is not with guys and men. The problem is with women and the children. I even see their lips, it's cracked and burned because there's no water enough for everyone. The people start really to die from the thirsty. There is no water. We was like very, very thirsty. We found one small, like small house, one room house. We look in the window, we found like four big bottles of water. 
but it was old water to be honest it was yellow water <laughs> but everybody is thirsty there so we broke the window take out the water and yeah we drink it was water old water but water <laughs> yeah there's uh, two or three old people one maybe is dead and uh, the other coma Two years previously, in 2012, back in Damascus, things were pretty bad for Anas and his family. And they were about to get worse. Then my uncle, uh, the military killed him. Nobody know the reason. We just know that we found my uh, uncle, and he's 75 years old, and uh, we found him take 23 steps in his body, even his wife, in the same way. And in case there was any doubt as to who killed Anas's aunt and uncle. They take the blood and write on the wall. They write the name of the president. And uh, when the sons arrive and see this problem, all his sons start to fight with the freedom military. There was a really big problem in the family when everyone starts going different side. I didn't talk from my cousin for around five, six years. And every couple of days I heard one of the cousins dead. One of the cousins dead, yeah. And that make our last name suspicious, Al-Qadri. Anas was stopped by a soldier on the road. I was in the car and he asked for my ID and uh, he asked me where is your military book? And I told him, uh, I'm sorry, I forget it in my home. He opened the door and take me out and slap me in front of like 200 or 300 persons on this. And uh, actually I can't look at his eye. Because if I do anything he will, he will shoot me. And even when I go back to my home I told my father and he just told me, okay, don't go out your home. This is the best way. And uh, in this in this time, I I think about it's time to get out and to start life. After four years, there's no new work or new anything. Just blood and bombs everywhere. And so Anas decided it was time to leave the country that he had lived in for the first 24 years of his life. After three days in the desert, they reached the city of Zuara. Zuara has been called the dark heart of Libya's people smuggling trade. All the ports from Libya start the trip from this city. And this city is like smuggler city. And the police don't have any power in this city. This city, Zuara, it's famous with smugglers. It's like Alibaba story, really. If I was... Uh, he was, if I was president of Italy, I would launch a nuclear missile on this city because it's really a bad city. You don't see women or kids there. You only see bad people carrying machine guns. That's it. They put us in one house and no one could take one step out of this house. There is a lot of smuggler around this house. In this house, there's around six or seven big rooms and there's around 300 persons inside it. It was really disaster, yeah. 
there is like 18 years, 17 years have AK-47. They just see us, we are $1,000 walking, that's it. They don't care about anything else. There's a lot of people there carrying the money and carrying all the stuff from Syria because these people, when they take the trip, they take everything with them because there's no way to go back. They sleep with one eye and the other eye is open. <laughs> yeah. Always stress, always people uh, get angry and fight with each other. After four or five days, in the middle of night, the smuggler came and he told us, we are ready, you can't carry anything. Your bags, take it out. We throw all the stuff, we're just carrying the passport. All you can bring with you is what you can wear. And since they were traveling together, Amar took both the phones, their passports, and all the money. I was wearing like three shirts because it's not legal to put your bag on the boat, so you need to wear everything. The smugglers separated out the families and the single people. Single people usually go downstairs in the boats and families get to stay upstairs in the deck. We're trying to go with families because always families, it's better than guys alone. Anas and Amar's plan was to help out with some of the children in the hope of getting on the boat with the family group and getting slightly better treatment. But when Amar went to the family room, the smuggler was not impressed. I was wearing like three jackets and two pants and too much t-shirts and put this uh, life jacket on me. And when he came to the room, really I was like, like, like a bear, like this. He told me, what are you doing here? I told him, I need to help this family, he said. You cannot walk. Go to, go to the single. They will not help you anybody. Help yourself first. I said, no problem. And I went to the singles. I thought we will go, all of us, on one boat, but they, they will put us first. Amar was taken to the boat with the single people and left for Italy, unaware that his older brother was still in Libya. When I find that Amar, he go with a different boat, I was really shocked. I thought about my family and my father, he was saying, Take care of Amar, take care. And that sound in my, in my head, <laughs> I couldn't even stand up. I just take a seat and think, 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 think. So I told the smuggler, I don't care. I can go swimming after him. I don't care. Just just make, make me go with him. And he told me the boat already go, so we can't do anything. They put us in the boat where's the angel. And the problem when the boat is stopped, the engine smoke is inside the boat. So all the people start to choke and it's, it's diesel smoke, so it's really poison. So people start to choke and start to die, really. There was three doctors, Syrian doctors inside this boat start to help people to wake up. Okay, slap, slap them on the face. I swear this doctor slapped like 100 people on their face. You don't want to arrive to Europe? I was like dizzy. Actually, I slept for eight hours. <laughs> I took like three painkillers. Amar took his painkillers and went to sleep downstairs in the boat, oblivious to the fact that his brother was not upstairs. For 10 hours in the boat, I didn't know that Anas is not on the boat. My journey took like 13 hours. For 10 hours, I thought Anas is upstairs. After 10 hours, I said, OK, I want to go to see my brother. I go up, ask people, did you see my brother? They said family didn't go out of Libya. Actually, I was 
not really scary because <laughs> I have everything. I have the money. I have the phones. I don't have any problem. Even the passport with me. So because I have all the the pockets, so he give me everything. Oh, we will go together. So no problem. Yeah, he didn't have anything. After thirteen hours, the Italian shapes start to take us out from the sea. We stay on the Italian ships for twenty four hours, and we arrived Sicilia. Anas was still back in the house in Zuara, and the fact that Amar had taken all the money was creating a bit of a problem. I stand in Libya and I don't have money, I don't have anything to complete my trip. In this kind of trip, no one cares about each other. So I stand there in that room. I love my, my, <laughs> my, my clothes, so I can't throw it. So... Uh, one of the people there, I told him, this is a good quality. No one wants this, this jeans. It's really good. Are you sure? No one needs it. And no one, no one needs it. So when I'm through it, I, I just touch something inside it. So it's like money. You know, there is, there is here for a pill. Oh, the waistband of your jeans. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I just touch it like this and there is money inside it. I open it and there was $500 there. <laughs> Before leaving Syria, Anas was out of the room when his dad had sewn money into the jeans. So I complete my trip with that 500. So would you have been stuck in Libya without that? Yeah, I would stay there, definitely. This happens to a lot of refugees. If they run out of money, they can find that they get stuck and at the mercy of people who will exploit them or imprison them. A day after Amar went on his boat, Anas was told that his group were finally going. He told us this is a big ship and it's so easy. After three hours, you will arrive to Sicily. I recognize there is something wrong. It's impossible to get there in three hours. But you can do anything. You will go with the group because the smuggler will take you and make you stay in this house a month or two with this food and without anything. And you can do anything. And we arrive to the coast. It's really dark we couldn't see anything when we arrive we see like wooden boat it's really old and small and all the people is too many people and some people is on people there's no places they all stay on the people so people are on top of other people yeah this small boat it usually care like 60 or 70 person he put 285 person inside it once the boat was loaded with people, the smugglers left. This is what happens on most of these boats. Captains are usually picked from the group, perhaps given a satellite phone or a compass, told to look for the lights of Italy and hope for the best. The captain from Tunis, he's always silent actually. He didn't speak, he, he carry a satellite phone. The smuggler put this phone on the port because Red Cross see the sign from this phone and we started the trip after 30 minutes the pump stopped the boat started to sink and the captain was really stupid he don't know anything about the road don't know anything about the engine or the machine and with all the trips same scenario after two four hours the boat will start sink and the engine will stop there's no more diesel this was a really dangerous place to break down. Boats don't reach international waters for 12 miles from the coast. 
and no rescue boats patrol the Libyan waters. So any of the really unseaworthy boats that get into trouble here can sink undetected. Bodies washing up on Libyan beaches is a daily occurrence. We found the mechanic on the boat and he fixed the engine and he fixed the bumper. After we start again, we saw a big ship for transfer the oil and the captain thought this is the Italian ship and he threw the satellite phone in the water. Captains are often told to throw the satellite phone in the water once a rescue vessel comes along so that they won't be identified as a smuggler. But without the phone, they had no way of finding their way and the boat was still taking on water. There's around 20 or 30 African guys on that boat. Somalian people and African people and people from Bangladesh. They started to took that water by glasses from down the boat. And I was on the window between the engine and between the sea. So for, for 19 hours, I would take the water from them and throw it. And there's around 15 guys around me. And no one start helping. No one do anything. Why? Because they are really dizzy. I always think about my brother, if he make it or not. This is the biggest fear for, for me. After he throw this phone in the sea, we get lost. Because this phone know all the direction. And there's no way to, to complete that trip. We just find the sun and put the sun on the left. And <laughs> when the night come, it's uh, really cold in the sea and uh, our clothes is it's uh, wet and the children even they they pissed on on the parents and it was really it was really difficult there we get finished from the oil and the engine stop there's no light to to see anything and in the middle of night there's no direction there's no anything in the night, big waves start and all the people like screams and no one on the world know that there is a boat in this area. The sea in the night like a monster. I really get afraid from the sea. And it's dark wherever you see and you can, you can imagine really monster there and really, and all the child, um, crying and and this in this time I thought about if the boat sink I thought which child I will carry which child I will swim with or if I will swim alone or I will drown after two or three hours I start to think about my brother he make it or not Somalian people in Bangladesh they get tired and we stop carrying the water from from down Last two hours, last one hour, two hours, all the people know they will, they will drown. There's no way to, to, to save our life. They start to read from Quran and some Christians, they start to make pray. Some people just crying. <laughs> I was crying, actually. I thought, I'm not a bad guy. What it's happened? Why this happened to me? And why? Organisations working in the area estimate that 3,000 people lost their lives trying to cross the Mediterranean last year. But if the boat that Anas was on had sunk, 
they wouldn't even have been part of the statistics. No one would know, no. It was like five minutes and none of the people on the board, they, they speak any words. It's only silent and you can only hear the waves. When you are in the sea and it's black and there is no lights, you can look around 200 kilometers around you and there is no even small light, nothing. It was like a dot inside the ocean. No one can see us. And everyone is hugging his family and he said, I'm sorry about that, it was my fault. I know really, really tough people there and they are start, starting crying. Exhaustion and desperation were setting in and someone had an idea. There's an app on smartphone. It makes SOS sign from the flash of the camera. And he take the phone and start this sign in the sea. And all the people on the boat, they take the phone and they send this app together and start, uh, start this sign. I'm trying to imagine the view from far flashing by the phones. And uh, after 30 minutes, there is a plane and the pilots see the sign. They make four or five circles around us and they take, take us exactly where are we and they send our location to a big ship. When we saw that plane, this is like America, exactly American. After maybe one hour, two hours, there's a big ship arrive and they saw the sign and uh, they take us from, from the sea. Without rescue boats like this Médecins Sans Frontières boat Dignity One patrolling the Mediterranean, it's likely that tens of thousands of people would have perished in the sea over the last two years. MSF have rescued over 18,000 people. The Irish Defence Forces have rescued over 8,000. In this situation, uh, there is no two or three person will die and the people survive. They will die all, but they will survive all. When the, the boat arrived to, uh, to our boat, all the people stand up and the boat was moved. And, uh, side side. Yeah, and the Italian guard told us, please, please. You will, you will drown uh, last 15 minutes, just wait, please. First thing, the children, then the woman. Then we will go back and we will take all the, all the guys. Don't be afraid. Emergency coordinator with Medsan Sans Frontier, Will Turner, has just returned from working in the Mediterranean, where he shared in the joy and relief of those picked up from the boats. Most of the time people are really grateful, very emotional, you know, women dropping to the floor, uh, praying, people singing, hugging. It's really a special moment of relief for, for people. So it's very nice to share, share those and, and I remember one young Eritrean boy, he, he's called John, he's only about nine years old. And uh, he was mature beyond his years. At, at night, we distribute blankets to everybody to make, make them comfortable. So I was helping him bed down for the night on deck. And just as he was going to sleep, he said to me, he said, oh, well, uh, nobody's going to come and stab us tonight, are they? An ass arrived in Sicily, but found that Amar had already left. When I arrived, I saw a friend who get the same trip with my brother. 
I, I asked him, where's my brother? And he told me they transferred him two hours ago. And I told him, why he didn't wait for me, why? <laughs> and uh, he told me he was afraid and he didn't know if, if you make it or not. He take the road with his friend. Not wanting to be left alone, Amar had left Sicily with other Syrians. Anas still had no phone, passport or money and was in a camp in Sicily. The worst place was the camp in Sicily. Ammar was lucky, he slept only one night on that camp. In that camp, they will give you cheese sandwich and cup of milk in the morning. And they will give you cheese sandwich and cup of juice on the lunch. Cheese sandwich and cup of water on dinner. So <laughs> I was there for five nights and I don't know where's Ammar. My money is finished, I have nothing there. Meanwhile, Amar was in Milan, where life was not too bad. And this time I was spending money in Milan. I was trying the Italian pizza and the buying things, clothes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I spent too much money in Milan. <laughs> I, I went to pizza restaurants, tried all the new pizzas. It was really nice pizzas in Milan. So yeah, I swear he was <laughs> poor. I was rich there. Back in Sicily, Anas was in a pretty desperate situation. After five nights, I really decide to leave this camp, whatever I, I do. I just start walking, 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 walking. I have no clothes. All my clothes were, were covered with that oil in the chip and um, my smell was really stink. So I'm really shy to walk even in the street. And I find a pop. No one speaks English there. I start to just Wi-Fi, internet, anything. And I said, yeah, I have Wi-Fi. And I go back to camp. I pick up off one of my friends and I told them, they have phone, yeah. And I opened internet and I found Amar online. I called them and, hello, Amar, where are you? And I am in Milan. What are you doing? I'm waiting with the train station, main train station. I told them, don't you ever move. Just stay there, whatever you want. Just stay there. I have nothing. Don't go anywhere because I don't have it. Because every time I was moving, moving. Because, so he said, stay in Milan. I don't have anything. <laughs> so I went in Milan for five days. Anas's parents too had had an agonizing wait to hear from him and whether or not he'd made the trip. My mother told me she didn't sleep in one week. It was really difficult for them, I know. Anas went by train to Milan, which is the main departure point for refugees to the rest of Europe. So finally we arrived to main train station in Milan. I meet Amma there. Okay, everything okay, yeah, yeah. Milan Central Station is a huge and grand building built by Mussolini and filled with people in transit. In 2014, it became home to thousands of refugees from Syria and from African and Asian countries. If they take all the people who came to Italy, the Arabic language would be the first language in Italy because there's too much people now. The people smuggling trade is also thriving in Italy. Always there is smuggler, always. We didn't know anything about the road, actually. I just know Europe on the map. Okay, the smuggler in Italy is Arab people. Always 90% Kurdish. Anas Namar paid $1,000 for a flight from Milan to Dublin. We met one smuggler there, Kurdish guy from Syria. To be honest, we want to go to UK. I didn't know Ireland. 
I swear. I, really, I do. I know that UK and Ireland is one piece. I didn't know there is Republic in Ireland. P.S. I love you. The film, the movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah, and the beer, and the beer. Guinness. Yeah. <laughs> the smuggler told them to fly to Dublin and that someone would take them to Belfast from where they could cross to the UK. He, he made Italian IDs for us, so we went to the airport. We crossed the first control when you check the ticket. And me and Danas was very scary. I go to the checkpoint. I said, Ponesera, Ponesera. I, I just know these two words. Give him the ID, say it like this. And I, I swear, I know he, he know that I'm Syrian. But he, he don't have to go. <laughs> he give me gracias and go. They go and I swear, I could read his mind. I know you are Syrian, just go. We thought that the difficult piece of, of this journey is finished. Now it's the easy one in Dublin. He took my card, look at it. Do you have any other ID like passport? I said, no, I don't have. He said, can you come with me? I showed the fake ID for the immigration there. And she asked me, why are you here? I'm on holiday. One week. And, <laughs> and she told me, didn't, you don't have any passport or anything? And I told them, I'm Syrian and this is my passport. <laughs> Anas and Amar requested asylum. They were transferred to Balsiskan Reception Centre and after one month were moved to Ballyhonas. They were given refugee status after eight months. They know they are lucky to get refugee status so quickly in Ireland. It's October 2015 and Anas and Amar are cooking Syrian food in their small apartment in Galway. Something they really appreciate after a year of not being able to cook for themselves. Recently Anas travelled to Istanbul where he met his parents and also his girlfriend whom he'd hoped to marry and bring back to Ireland. My plan was to make the marriage contract in Turkey to bring it here and prove that she's my wife to family reunification and meet my family because I didn't saw them for around 14 months. I met my family and I was so happy. My two sisters and my father and mother. For my girlfriend's situation, things didn't work out. It's like um, we was really far for a long time and um, internet didn't explain enough things between us. So we just, I just meet her family, meet her and Go back to Ireland, because we can stay there. Anas has a degree in civil engineering, but it's not recognised here. So he's hoping to go to Galway University next year to get his Irish civil engineering degree. I know that I will complete my study and and I will pay my tax, like every Irish person. And I, I wish a good life here. Amar is doing his FITAC exams, also in civil engineering, and also hopes to go to university. We are not here to take the jobs from the European people, from the Irish people, or, or make problems or uh, ISIS things. ISIS is like cancer, really. It's easy to make friends in Ireland. <laughs> Lovely people, so <laughs> it's easy. <laughs> yeah, you just need to say hi. <laughs> About Ireland, it's peaceful here. And for our experience, not the money, not the work, not anything important than than safe place to live. 
I'm not afraid from anything here because I can say whatever you say and this is our freedom. <laughs>